Support for this podcast comes from Kinney Drugs, celebrating 120 years of providing medications, advice, and quality healthcare products and services. Kinney pharmacists administer all CDC-recommended vaccines to those age 18 and older, including flu, HPV, Tdap, MMR, chickenpox, and hepatitis A and B. They also administer vaccines indicated for older adults, including shingles for age 50+, plus, RSV for age 60+, plus, and pneumonia for age 65+. Plus. Employee-owned and locally committed since 1903. Learn more at kinneydrugs.com. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The war between Israel and Hamas reaches new levels of brutality each day. Some 1,400 Israelis were killed and 5,400 injured in Hamas's surprise attack on October 7th, according to Israeli officials. In retaliation, Israel launched a bombardment and blockade of the Gaza Strip, killing over 8,500 Palestinians and injuring more than 22,000 as of November 1st, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the assault on Gaza amounted to the quote, collective punishment of the Palestinian people, and violated international law, which Israel angrily denied. This clash is now the deadliest and most destructive of the five wars fought between Israel and Hamas since Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip in 2007. That's right, five wars in 16 years. What is the deeper story behind the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? For answers, I turned to two experts at Dartmouth College, one Egyptian, the other American-Israeli, who each have deep personal experience with the issue. Isadine Fischer is a senior lecturer at Dartmouth, where he has taught courses on Middle East politics and culture since 2016. Fischer previously served as an advisor to Egyptian pro-democracy movements and worked in the Egyptian Foreign Service and the United Nations missions in the Middle East. He directed the Arab-Israeli Project at the International Crisis Group and worked as a counselor to the Egyptian foreign minister. He's a columnist for the Washington Post. Bernard Abishai is a visiting professor of government at Dartmouth and an adjunct professor of business at the Hebrew University. He's formerly taught at MIT and Duke. He is the author of The Tragedy of Zionism, A New Israel, and other books. He writes regularly on Israeli affairs for The New Yorker, The Nation, and other publications. I began my conversation with Professor Fischer, followed by Professor Avishai. Isidine Fischer, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I wonder if we could start here by just, from your perspective, talking about the roots of the current crisis. Where do you begin that story? It's very hard to kind of pin a beginning of that story because also the way you start the story has political implications. And given that this conflict stirs a lot of emotions, I'm, I'm always worried that if you start some at some place and not another, that you would trigger the listener, whether the listener is a student or, you know, general public, and then they would kind of stop listening to what you're saying. Some of the most of the time people think if you, you know, if you start, for example, and say, um, let's, let's understand occupation, let's understand why Palestinian, that this comes across as justifying um, terrorism or being an apologetic for it, right? Um, and if you say, all right, let's start with the terrorism, then people would think, oh, so you don't recognize the context in which this happens and you kind of overlooking the suffering. So I think the point I would like people to start with is this, is to understand that this is a story that has so many facets to it. And a lot of people think that the facet or the perspective they have is the only valid one. And that's the only one completely wrong thing about this conflict. The one thing we have to ditch, to have to kind of get rid of, is that <clears throat> idea that there is one correct way of telling the story of this conflict, that there is one valid perspective on, the, on this conflict. All right, so that's, let's, this is where I wanna start. 
if we accept this, then the listener might be more um, amenable to wait a little bit because, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to try multiple perspectives and maybe one of them would resonate more. But it's actually, and this is what I tell students, it's actually the perspective that doesn't resonate with you. That is the one that you are most likely to learn from. Not necessarily to accept, but just if you look at things in a different way, maybe you will see something different. And that's that's growth. We, you know, we are told to do this in our personal lives. We are told not to use the same mantra when we're upset at something because it's going to produce the same right reaction. So we're told to use beginner's mind. Look at this as if this is something new. So let you know, that's my starting point. Let's do that. Okay. And that leads us back to where would you like to begin? Um, I, I have my own bias. I feel like people always want to start 2000 years ago. I don't find that very helpful. Um, I'd like to keep us a little bit more in the realm of the modern era to just so that we can understand, for example, what is Gaza? What is the West Bank? What is Hamas? What is the Palestinian Authority, for example? So maybe if their goal is to drive to answer, you know, how did we get to this current landscape that we are now that is so contested? That would help people, I think, to grasp what is going okay. on. Very good. So let me follow your lead here. And instead of starting um, the story with, let's say, end of 19th century, that's where um, historians you know, modern historians, not 2000 years ago, but end of 19th century, then the story would begin with, you know, Zionist movement because of pogroms and uh, crisis of Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, right? But also the desire on the part of um, leading um, Jewish figures to revive Jewish life, not just so it's not just to find a refuge from um, persecution, but also to have a space where Jewish life is reborn in, in a modern way. Um, so you have this story of Zionism. And then at the same time, you have a similar story happening in Palestine, which is an awakening of Palestinian nationalism and a desire for independence uh, from the Ottoman uh, overlords and so on and so forth, right? And then the two will clash. We can start there. But let's start with something closer, a lot closer. So we have October 7, we have this savage attack by Hamas um, on Israeli kibbutzim, on towns and villages and on civilians. And the savagery of the attack is shocking to everybody. Um, the scale, the type of violence applied, it's just, it is, it's very, very new um, in, in this context. So the first question is, what is Hamas and where is this is coming from? And what is Gaza and what is West Bank? Which takes us a little bit a step back. So let's, the step back is 2005. So Gaza and West Bank have been under Israeli occupation since 67. There were numerous attempts to negotiate a peace agreement and some form of withdrawal from West Bank and Gaza that would allow for a Palestinian state to emerge on those territories or large parts of those territories. So and that I, I want to um, I, I want to interrupt and just take us to 1968. How did West the West Bank and Gaza come to be? Why are they called the occupied territories? All right. So. Uh, 60, 1967, you have this war between Israel, um, Egypt, um, Syria, and uh, Jordan. And like everything in this conflict, there is at least at least two main narratives about it. The Israeli narrative, and when I say narrative, I, I don't mean to disparage it, but I want people to remember that there is another story. So the Israeli narrative, which is felt very strongly in Israel, is that they were under attack by Arab countries who were about to invade Israel and you know, threaten its existence. And as a preemptive kind of measure, the Israeli government launched an attack. Um, first Egypt and then Syria and then Jordan joined. And as a result of this war, Israel occupied um, Sinai, the entire Sinai Peninsula in Egypt and occupied the West Bank it's a West Bank of the Jordan River, 
So Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan is the east bank of that river. So Israel occupied that West Bank that was under Jordanian control, if not sovereignty, because it's not part of Jordan. Um, it's a Palestinian territory and occupied the Golan Heights, which is part of Syria. Uh, from the Arab perspective, um, they were under attack. This is a pure aggression that shows Israel is expansionist and so on and so forth. And this and is the Six-Day War we're speaking This of. is the Six-Day War in June 5th, 1967. And, um, and then Egypt kind of negotiated a peace agreement with Israel, and that was a huge change. It's the first Arab state to recognize Israel as a state. And um, Syria, there were other negotiations, but didn't lead. So since then, since that war, the Arab world has moved for all practical purpose from the idea of liberating Palestine from river to sea, which means ending Zionism, to accepting the idea of two states. One would be Israel in its pre-1967 borders, and the other one would be Palestine in um, West Bank and Gaza. And from that moment on, the West Bank and Gaza became known as the Palestinian occupied territories, as opposed to the mandated Palestine upon which Israel was created in 1948. Explain where Gaza came from in this configuration. So when um, that takes us back, one more war. So 1948... Uh, there was 1947, the British were still, were kind of declared that they can no longer maintain their mandate in Palestine that they had since 1920, more or less, 1922, um, and that they are going to exit that Palestine. Um, when they did this, there was, you know, a diplomatic, um, a fury of diplomatic activity trying to find out what to do because Palestine became... Uh, a destination for a Jewish homeland, but it's also, even according to the Balfour Declaration, that was the basis of the establishment of this homeland. Palestine was also supposed to be a homeland for the Palestinians. So two homelands in one country, how we do this? Many projects, some American, some British, none, nothing really worked. Ultimately, the United Nations was invited to arbitrate, and they came up with a partition plan. The partition plan established or called for the establishment of two states, Israel and Palestine. Um, Israel accepted the partition plan. The Palestinians rejected it and the Arab world rejected it for a variety of reasons, among which, you know, the UN has no mandate to actually partition countries and so on. Ultimately, a civil war takes place in 1947. Then Arab states intervene in Palestine militarily with the aim of dismantling this Zionist um, state that is being born and re-establishing Palestine as an Arab state. All five countries get defeated by the nascent Israel. And in the course of that defeat, uh, what becomes Israel will expand beyond the partition plan and takes um, you know, as much territory as, it, as, as they could. That left out the West Bank under Jordanian military control and left out what became known as Gaza under Egyptian military control. So Gaza is actually the piece of territory that was left under Egyptian control after multiple defeats um, Egypt suffered at the hand of the new Israeli state. As such, and I'll stop here, Gaza became also like the West Bank, uh, like South Lebanon, like Jordan, but Gaza in particular became the recipient of a large population coming from areas around Gaza, all the way from Jaffa, which is now a suburb of Tel Aviv. At the time, Jaffa was the biggest Palestinian city and, 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 and harbor. Um, so tens of thousands of Palestinians, I think about 300,000 Palestinians, left their homes in different places in Palestine and moved to Gaza as a temporary refuge until the war is over. Once the war is over, was over, Israel uh, declared that it's not going to permit anybody who left to come back. And those are what we call the, ref the refugees. And that explains partly the degree of resentment uh, that um, Gazans feel, including towards the inhabitants of the kibbutzim 
uh, near Gaza because this is the land that you know their grandparents had. This is these were their villages, their lands, and so on. So for them, um, they don't really make that distinction between um, the resident, the citizens of Israel, and let's say settlers who are in the West Bank. For them, this is all occupied territory. And this is what is called by Palestinians the Nakba, the catastrophe. Explain what is meant by that. Well, what happened is within practically two weeks, you know, Jaffa is a good example. Jaffa moved from being the, the main, the kind of the New York of Palestine at the time, you know, all proportions, of course, um, um, different. It became from that, it became almost a ghost city. Uh, we have about two thirds of the Palestinian population left Palestine, either they um, escaped um, waiting for the conflict to be over and hoping to come back after it's over, or were actually actively driven out of their homes and villages and so on. There were also acts of terror that were committed by a faction of the Zionist movement that was a kind of a, a dissenting faction from main Zionism, and that used terror in order to drive people away, just to terrorize the, the, the civilian population away. And that was very effective in kind of spreading fear and pushing people to leave. So within few weeks, Palestine, the Palestinian society literally collapsed and the whole country collapsed. So instead of, we were talking before that civil war about partition, about two states, and the Palestinians were unhappy that all this land is gonna go to what becomes a Jewish state and why would they take it? Because they, you know, this is our grandparents, da, da, da. Suddenly they lost their own cities. Haifa has gone. Um, all the Palestinian city kind of collapsed in the hands of their enemies. And whatever leadership was there was decimated. As I said, two-thirds of the population was driven out. And this is not just a loss of a home or a loss of, um, you know, property like land that, you know, agricultural land. You got to think about it. You lose your homeland. You lose, you lose you know, the streets, the public spaces, access to this, everything. And just like it's gone. So suddenly those, you know, the majority of Palestinians felt completely dispossessed materially and emotionally and thrown out. Um, even those who stayed were subject, obviously, to military rule for about two decades. Um, so for them, this is the biggest disaster. That's the word Nakba. It's, it means catastrophe or disaster that has befallen Palestinians um, in their modern history. So I interrupted you when you were starting to go to 2005. This is sort of defines the modern landscape that people are familiar with now. Explain, um, since I cut you off, explain where you were going before I no, actually, no, drove actually, you back to the to 1967. Yeah, no. That, that was actually pretty, pretty helpful because they're all kind of connected. So I was going back to 2005 because 2005 is what is called the unilateral disengagement from Gaza, Israel's withdrawal from Gaza. But um, given that we talked about 48 and about 67, so maybe we should talk about the Oslo agreement in 1993. So the Oslo agreements are extremely important. It's a turning point because for the first time, two things happened. The, the main Palestinian um, national movement organization, the, what's called the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, the PLO had renounced the use of violence, renounced terrorism, and then renounced the use of violence and committed itself to resolving this conflict peacefully. And that was Israel's condition and the US condition to engage with the PLO. And by doing this, in return, Israel acknowledged that there is a Palestinian people and that the Palestinian people has aspirations and accepted to enter into negotiation with the PLO to find a way to settle this conflict. As a result, so as a result of this mutual recognition of 93, the two sides um, developed two agreements that created what we know today as the Palestinian Authority, which is a sort of a governing body in the West Bank and Gaza who are under overall Israeli control, but that 
um, this Palestinian Authority will have autonomy over certain areas, will have jurisdiction over certain areas. You can think about it if you're an American as, again, you know, keeping in mind proportions, uh, that this is kind of like the, the issue of federal jurisdiction and state jurisdiction. And here the federal power would be Israel. So control over borders, overall control over borders is Israel's jurisdiction. Overall security control is Israel's jurisdiction. Within cities, you have the equivalent of a municipal police. That's the PA. So the police force that does, you know, if you have a traffic issue or somebody gets murdered, that's Palestinian police. But if there is uh, terrorism and Palestinian police can't deal with it, then Israel has an overriding uh, security responsibility. All right. Uh, so this is how, so the Palestinian Authority emerged out of those agreements. And the idea, again, for the first time was to move Israel and the Palestinians from a relationship of hostility and animosity to a relationship of cooperation. The idea is this is a tiny space. The entire area is, you know, all of Israel, Palestine is really tiny. And it's it's not really, it's not practical to think of them as two separate entities. So the idea was to get them into cooperation, build confidence during a transitional period, at the end of which they will reach final agreement on what happens to Jerusalem, where would the borders be for a Palestinian entity slash state, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, um, I heard um, Bernard Avishai talking about the, the dog and the tail that is the dog. And it's an apt uh, metaphor, I think. So the rejectionist on both sides, mainly Hamas and Jihad, armed groups on the Palestinian side, but also right-wing um, politicians and um, settler movements in particular in Israel, who are both are more attached to the idea of, um, of the land itself, um, then they are attached to the idea of peace. And therefore, for them, partitioning the land is a betrayal. Um, on the Jewish side, it's a betrayal of a biblical promise. And on the uh, Hamas side, it's a betrayal of, um, you know, Islamic commitment to the land and integrity of it and so on. And I'm not saying this to establish any um, equivalence. I'm not interested in that kind of equivalence business at all, but I'm saying ultimately you have two rejections groups for different reasons and using different methods, right? Um, but both had a hold on decision-making in their respective polities and both have managed at sometimes at different times, sometimes at the same time, managed to derail uh, the Oslo agreement implementation and then got us all into a cycle of violence um, in, in what's known as the second intifada in 2000. And explain who is Hamas and how did they come to control Gaza while the Palestinian Authority is still governing uh, the West Bank? Uh, that is probably the most significant part of the story to understand what is happening, not just what happened recently, but to understand the dynamics behind it. So 2000, by the year 2000, negotiations have collapsed and the Palestinians, uh, both Hamas and others, kind of resorted to violence in order to get Israel to accept a full withdrawal from West Bank and Gaza. Now, Hamas is an Islamist organization. It started as a charity, a little bit like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and in other countries. But then um, as we moved into the, you know, the 80s, they also started to champion, sorry, to champion the national cause of Palestinian resistance. And then um, after the Oslo agreement, they kind of specialized in using violence in order to derail that process. <clears throat> now, why the question then is not why Hamas used violence because they kind of moved into using violence and they build on an older tradition of Islamist violence in Palestine that goes back to 1928 29, by the way, with the massacres of Hebron. Um, the question is why the other Palestinians opted for violence in 2000 when the negotiations failed. So, when negotiations fail. You know, violence is not the only response. So why violence became attractive then 
that will explain what happened afterwards and why Hamas took over Gaza. And that's it gets a bit complicated. Remember, we said, I said, after six in 67, Israel occupied the Golan Heights in Syria. Now, Israel um, in, in, in 1999, when Barak became prime minister, tried to negotiate with the Syrian a withdrawal from the Golan Heights and a mutual recognition with Syria. That would almost automatically trigger um, a peace agreement with Lebanon because Syria had practically controlled Lebanon since then. And the idea why Israel was so keen on this, because Hezbollah, a Shiite organization in South Lebanon, was launching attacks against Israel's army that was occupying part of South Lebanon. Are you completely lost or? No, we've we've introduced now Hezbollah, but I think people are appreciating this kind of breakdown of who's who. Okay, so Hezbollah is um, attacking Israeli soldiers inside that zone that Israel occupies in South Lebanon, because this is then armed resistance. It's legitimate under international law. So it, you can't characterize those attacks as terrorism. But for Israel, there was practically at least a soldier killed every month. Every month, you have to go to a family and tell them they lost their 20-year-old kid because you're occupying South Lebanon that nobody understands why South Lebanon, is, you know, of course, yeah, sure, we're occupying it for security, but nobody wants to lose their kid for that. So there was a lot of pressure on ending that situation, getting Israel out of South Lebanon. And Syria was using that in order to squeeze Israel into more concessions. When Syria and Israel failed to reach an agreement, and that's, you know, the dramatic part, Ahud Barak, the prime minister of Israel, decided to withdraw unilaterally from South Lebanon, all the way to the international borders. Every bit of Lebanese territory was vacated by the Israeli army. So if you're Palestinian sitting in Ramallah negotiating for seven years, unfruitfully, you look at this and you draw conclusions. Why did Israel withdraw from South Lebanon? and not from the outskirts of Ramallah. Because in South Lebanon, there's Hezbollah fighting. Because you're losing a kid every month. There is pressure on you. And then the conclusion Palestinians made, I happen to think it's erroneous, but the conclusion that the majority of Palestinians made was Israel responds only to force. And therefore, we have to use force if we are to get it out of the West Bank. And that idea dominated the Palestinians so much that kind of it fueled already resentment and anger and so on. And that kind of led to the Intifada in the year 2000. All right. Which was followed by subsequent Intifadas. There have been a number of them. Yes. This was a kind of called the second Intifada, but that one was a lot more violent, where they had suicide bombings almost on daily basis in Israeli cities and streets and coffee shops and buses. It was pretty brutal. And it was also accompanied in response by an Israeli reinvasion of the West Bank. So we have seen in the year 2000 all the way to 2004, a kind of a serious escalation in violence, both in West Bank and Gaza. In Gaza, Hamas also on the West Bank, but Hamas played a good part in this, a major part in this armed intifada, because that's that's what they're good at. They're better at this than they are at negotiation, right? Because it's not interested in negotiation. And here's the second thing that happens that will signal to the Palestinians that will reinforce the idea that Israel responds only to force. Israel decided Ariel Sharon, prime minister, whose hawkish was... Um, he, he died um, after that, but he was known as a hawkish um, leader. He decided to unilaterally withdraw from Gaza. And what year was that? 2005. The so decision was made earlier, but it was implemented 2005. And then the Palestine, number one, so a lot of people argued with Sharon at the time. I happened to be, you know, I, I was working in Israel as a diplomat between 99 and, and 2005, so I kind of first-hand experience that. A lot of people, including the UN where I worked, pleaded with Sharon to make that withdrawal part of what we called at the time the roadmap for peace, part of an agreement with the PA, so that 
number and also to deploy a UN mission in Gaza to make sure that the Palestinian Authority would be capable of maintaining law and order to monitor, to help them disarm armed groups, and so on and so forth. But um, Prime Minister Sharon had a lot of distrust, nothing good to say about the PA or about its president Arafat at the time, and he opted for a unilateral disengagement or withdrawal, which meant for Palestinians, number one, again, Israel responds only to force because it was getting a lot of casualties in Gaza. Um, and number two, Hamas is winning. Hamas is the actual kind of party because Hamas is the one responsible for most of those attacks in Gaza. So Hamas is the one that actually managed to, quote unquote, liberate any part of Palestine. And the question was like, so if you talk to Palestinians at the time, I'll tell you, so what did negotiations achieve? You've been negotiating for almost more than 10 years now. Where is the Palestinian state? But you're fighting, you're shooting at the army, you're shooting at settlers, they leave. So ultimately, Israel withdraws from, from inside the, the Gaza Strip, but it keeps control over the borders and airspace and the sea, right? But withdraws from inside the, and moves out the settlers, um, evacuates 21 settlements. Um, and that's translated into giving Hamas a huge boost of popularity and credibility inside Gaza. A year later, we have elections. Hamas wins, not exactly a majority, but they win the largest bloc and they don't win the majority of, of, of the popular vote, but enough seats to form a government. And then... And, you know, internal strife between the two wings of the Palestinian national movement. They fight 2007. Hamas takes over and kicks out the other part of the Palestinian Authority. Israel imposes a siege. Egypt participates in the siege. And this is what Gaza has been subject to since 2007. So we're we're just about out of time here, but I wonder if you could... If we look at this current moment as, you know, a, a kind of horrific inflection point, but you as a student of the history of this and seeing the sweep of conflict and peace, what could you imagine coming out of this current conflict um, that might change the dynamic, worsen it? I don't know. What do you think will come of this? Look, I'm I'm a realist with um with 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 dreams, let's say. Um so the realist in me would tell you, look, we have seen this happening over and over. This confrontation, of course, is a lot bigger than the previous ones, but the dynamic is the same. Hamas launches operations because it's trying to prove it's still relevant, because it's trying to break free from the siege imposed on it and on the Palestinians in Gaza. A lot of Palestinians would support it because they feel they are prison in, in prison and have no hope and so on and so forth. Israel then has no option but to respond like any state would respond to attacks. But then Israel goes on because it's heavily dense populated um, and heavy, heavily populated areas. They would go and bomb some targets, but they will inevitably kill more civilians than they kill militants or armed or terrorist, or whatever you want to call them, right? And there will be an international outcry, so and then some sort of ceasefire, and then we go back at the same cycle. It's been happening happening over and over again since December 2007. It's tragic, but that's the pattern. Unless you have a way of breaking the cycle, the cycle is going to reproduce itself. Israel has uh, sometimes... Um, unrealistic objectives, like we're going to uproot Hamas and destroy Hamas and annihilate Hamas, it never does. You, 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 know, you can't do that. You cannot uproot a movement like this. Nobody ever did. Uh, what you do is you decimate its capabilities, but then the capabilities grow back again, and then you go back to where you started. Um, so the realist in me would say, this is just going to be more of the same. The hopeful in me, the dreamer in me would say, every time this happens, you can think you need, you know, the parties are locked in their patterns, which is the essence of tragedy. 
right? Every tragic hero does what they are supposed to do to protect, you know, their objectives, aspirations, uh, sense of duty, all of that. You need an external, you need a deus ex machina to come and change the game. And my deus ex machina here is the United States. It's the only state, the only player that has enough power on one hand, but also that has its national security interests tied to security and peace in the region. It's the only state that actually wants Israelis and Palestinians to have some kind of modus vivendi that is stable and to bring other countries in that to stabilize the Middle East. Not necessarily because it likes the Middle East or people of the Middle East, but because it want to move on and do other things. It has China to worry about. It has you know other global issues, Ukraine and Russia, all of that. So the United States has an incentive and the power to bring the parties together. Now, bring the parties together around what? Bring the parties together about around a political solution that, number one, gives Israel security so that this doesn't happen again. Number two, gives Palestinians hope so that they have something positive to look to and not just something negative and something that translates the despair they, they have. And that if you have this something positive, which is a Palestinian state, on whatever border that they agree to, but a Palestinian state that garners that support, that becomes a beacon of hope for those people, that allows them dignity, equality and dignity, right? But also allows the country, the region uh, like Jordan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia, who was interested in normalizing relations with Israel, allow all those to come in in a helpful way and be part of number one, building the Palestinian state, but but building it in a peaceful, building a peaceful partner that will coexist with Israel in peace and security. And that all of those, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, the future Palestinian state become a nucleus of a more stable Middle East, a model Middle East, something that is not gonna be ideal, but something that moves in a positive direction. So that's the, the dreamer in me. And I don't think it's an unrealistic dream. It just, it requires, it requires leadership. It requires focus. It requires investment. And it requires some vision and people who are capable of, you know, not just acting as if they are on autopilot. Like, you know, I trigger you, you get triggered. And then you react in exactly the same way I expect. So if we can break this and get this leadership, and I think Biden, that's his moment. If, if we can do this, then the Middle East will change and America's relationship with it will change in a positive way. If we can't, you know, I've been in interviews like this repeatedly, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And sadly, I'm, you know, I, I was one part of my job was to write briefings to the Security Council. And we would tell the Security Council, unless the Council acts next month, there will be more dead, da, 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 da. And every, every month we'd come back, there will be more dead people, more conflict. There is nothing unpredictable about this conflict. So the only thing that if people are really tired, if people are really want to invest in changing it, I think that's the way. Well, Isidine Fischer, I want to thank you for this very enlightening history lesson and for finishing it by just dreaming a little bit of a brighter future in the middle. I'm a Vermonter. I always maintain hope. That's my job. Okay. Thanks. So thank much. you very much. That was Isidine Fischer. He is a senior lecturer at Dartmouth College, where he teaches classes on Middle East politics. He previously worked in the Egyptian Foreign Service and the United Nations. We turn now to Bernard Avishai, a visiting professor of government at Dartmouth and an adjunct professor of business at the Hebrew University, who writes about Israel for The New Yorker and other publications. Bernard Avishai, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. I want to start by just asking, uh, I know you sp split your time between the U.S. and Israel. If you have friends or family who've been personally affected by the Hamas attacks. Well, uh, the short answer is yes. The long answer is yes, but um, most of the people I know who have been directly affected were not our closest friends, but at this point, it all feels kind of academic. Um, we we feel that 
the country is going through a very uh, significant crisis. And everyone we know has children uh, in uniform in one way or another. That's something that isn't often understood when we talk about Israeli soldiers moving into this place or that place. Um, my cousin, my first cousin, has eight grandchildren in uniform right now. And uh, I can give you many other cases like that. And they're, you know, she's as concerned for their lives as for lives lost by um, a missile coming from uh, Yemen or a rocket coming from Gaza. Um, and I dare say uh, she's very concerned about Palestinian civilians as well. Every, you know, she's very much aware that uh, there are a lot of mothers who are uh, on tenterhooks right now. Does it feel like you can criticize Israel now? I mean, I know professionally you are very thoughtful and critical uh, in your discussions, but do you get personal blowback uh, from your own family uh, at this moment? Because we certainly are hearing that um, even those on the Israeli left don't feel like they can be critical. Uh, well, first of all, you know, I'm of an age now where um, I'm sort of venerable in my old, my own family. So the, when, when the, the ideas that my wife and I have about the conflict, which we try to be nuanced about for the last 40, 50 years, um, have really sort of set the tone in our family. So I don't feel like there's anyone in my immediate circle that I have to be aware of. Um, I, in the, in the sense of the larger community, look, um, the word Israel is a bit of a misnomer. Um, Israelis have a politics, just like Americans have a politics. Uh, you can't be for Israel or against Israel. You can only be against some Israel. You can be against some Israelis and force other Israelis because no one has uh, a monolithic view of what the future of the country uh, might be. Um, I think uh, it is very hard at this point to address the moral conundrum that Israel is in. Um, certainly, um, it's hard for me to hear um, people who will say in some way that um, the massacre of October 7th was somehow understandable owing to the occupation or because of the conditions in Gaza. But that doesn't just have to do with how I feel about Israel. It has to do with how I feel about politics. I think the idea that killing people at random is a political act is so foreign to my idea of what politics is. Um, it's so foreign to my sense that um, building for the future is hard and difficult and takes patience and time and intelligence. And just blowing something up or killing someone is just an ecstatic act of revenge or grief that gets us nowhere. Um, so, you know, I don't feel it's hard to criticize, as it were, Israel, but I certainly feel uh, very distant, as many Israelis do, from this current government, particularly uh, the face of the government, Netanyahu, who I think should have resigned immediately. Um, it's, it's a disgrace that he hangs on to power. It's a disgrace that he's unwilling, even in power, to uh, immediately create some kind of national coalition government in which his own voice would be admittedly uh, smaller than it is right now. Why um, do you say he's a disgrace, Netanyahu? Because, first of all, because he has uh, spent a great deal of time in the last uh, year in attacking uh, elites, attacking the institutions that make the uh, country work, the economy, the military, um, because they have been unwilling to go along with his attack on the judiciary. 
Um, so he's been splitting the country. He's been cavalier about what it takes to keep the country united. Um, and uh, all for reasons that are too complicated to go into right now. But uh, he he obviously has helped breed a kind of um, carelessness uh, that that led to a lack of uh, preparedness. But it's worse than that. Um, for the last 15 years, he's done everything to undermine the Palestine Authority. And one of the ways he's done that is by, in a way, elevating Hamas as, a, uh, as an alternative address for Palestinian national uh, conversation. Um, he, he's, he once said privately that Hamas is a national asset for Israel because it takes the heat off Israel having to deal with the question of a two-state solution. Um, moreover, he's been coddling the, the uh, settlers, the uh, extremely zealot settlers um, in the West Bank uh, for the last uh, 30 years. And the army, which should have been prepared on the border of Gaza, was actually, uh, several battalions were called actually to police the West Bank because of the way settlers were, were uh, rampaging there and the, and the um, Palestinian uh, riots that came in, in part as a result of that rampaging. So, you know, he has in every possible way lost the right to lead this country at a moment like this and for these reasons. And yet he clings to power and thinks himself Churchill. He thinks, you know, he'll make war, come out the other end, the war will be victorious and he'll, you know, people will make a statue of him. Um, I, I think it's just, uh, it's, it, it seems to me almost inconceivable that he hasn't resigned. I want to, um, you mentioned the settlers. Explain who the settlers are and their role in Israeli politics now. Um, the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem says that settlers have killed seven people since the Hamas attacks of October 7th, and 500 Palestinians have been pushed from their homes in the West Bank. Um, who are the settlers? Well, you'd have to rewind the tape a long way to get to their origins. Um, I think it's it's fair to summarize them as religious zealots who think they're doing God's will by eliminating from the land, which they consider to be God-given, eliminating from the land the other people. Uh, they think the land is theirs, that they're and and they believe that the country should really be run according to Jewish law, halacha, um, that somehow uh, the uh, Israeli government is um, uh, got to be convert, converted into a kind of theocratic government with um, uh, you know, separation of the sexes, um, that they are in many ways the mirror of what Hamas is. Um, I won't say they have been as violent as Hamas. There have been some settlers who certainly have been as violent as Hamas. Um, they have uh, murdered a prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin. They have um, the one one of their number uh, committed a massacre in 1994, which was aimed at destroying the um, Oslo peace process. Uh, Baruch Goldstein in Hebron, who killed 29 people in cold blood, um, and they they regard uh, the state of Israel as um, a kind of. Uh, secular authority that either gets in their way or helps them. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to think about the settlement movement any longer as just a bunch of idealistic people who are trying to rehearse the original Zionist idea of putting 
putting themselves down in different parts of the land of Israel. It's, these are um, proto-fascist groups with extreme religious totalitarian views, and they are um, there because they believe that by being there, they will obstruct any kind of um, Palestinian state. You've written a book about Zionism, and you know, at, at this point in history, a lot of people only know that word as something that is part of a slogan or a sign for people who are either anti-Zionist or Zionist. Can you explain what is Zionism today? And, you know, the charge is leveled at people who oppose Zionism, that they're anti-Semitic. Um, do you agree with that? Can one be against Zionism and not be anti-Semitic? Um why don't I sort of raise the, you know, why don't I leave the question of whether you can be anti-Zionist and not anti-Semitic for later? I, I want to think about what Zionism really is. I mean, part of the problem is that when you say Zionism now, people think, hmm, like a synagogue with an army, you know, this is, you know, the, the, the because American Jews are the Jews that everyone sees in this country and they think of oh well there was the holocaust and you know the jews were persecuted for their particular religion or ethnic origin or whatever and anti-semitism was uh, this horror and um zionism was somehow uh, arguing for um uh the you know, the, the, the strengthening of the Jewish people in, in the face of persecution, and and that's it. And so that that's the easiest kind of solution to the question. Um, that's profoundly wrong. Uh, the Zionist movement was, from its origin, a modernist, secular, and somewhat revolutionary idea, which was the... Um, traditional Jewish people were not going to survive the modern world because the modern world was liberal, enlightened, and like all religious communities, Jews would either confront and embrace modernity or they would disappear. Jews as a religious community would either confront and embrace modernity or disappear. And they believed, the Zionists believed, that the way for Jews to survive modernity and to thrive in modernity was to create a national experience, a nationality called Jew, which would be rooted in the Hebrew language and in a territory. And so ultimately, Jews would be Jewish the way French are, are the way Frenchmen are created France. That, that, that to be Jewish would be to live in a Hebrew-speaking republic, a democratic republic, into which all kinds of uh, ideas would flourish, that, that you know, people would, mod would, would ask scientific, literary, modern, uh, legal, sexual questions in Hebrew. That, that was the idea. And it was a huge success. I mean, you go to Tel Aviv today, you're in one of the most cosmopolitan, wonderful, young, scientific, technologically advanced, cool places on the face of the earth, all in the Hebrew language, of course, sprinkled with a lot of global English, okay? That's, that was what Zionism really intended from the beginning. It was as much a revolution against the rabbis as it was against the anti-Semites, because in because they believed, the Zionists believed that the rabbis were holding the Jews back in a a kind of um, uh, anachronistic cult. Now, I don't want to imply by this that there aren't wonderful, interesting things that rabbinic tradition has done. Um, I don't think that the settlers, for example, who consider themselves custodians of the Hebrew uh, Jewish tradition, of the Jewish religious tradition, 
I don't believe that they're right that they are the custodians. I don't, I think that there was always in Jewish tradition something that yielded a kind of um, affinity for liberal life. I don't want to go into that, but I think it's true. And you just look at the Jews of America, for example, and and see, as it once was said, you know, a, a, a very substantial community that earns like Episcopalians and votes like Puerto Ricans. I mean, we've always had this highly uh, um, uh, natural affinity, this this high natural affinity for for liberal ideas. And I think that's true for Jewish tradition in many ways, but nevertheless, that's not what the Zionists were really up to. They, they, they really saw themselves as a revolutionary movement against orthodox rabbinic life. They thought revelation was for children. Revelation was for, you know, uh, orthodox cults. They had to deal with a world that would allow them to grapple with the realities of, of the modern world uh, in a new Hebrew experience. Um, and as I say, I think it was a tremendously successful re re uh, revolution. In, you know, in the year 1900, you could count the number of Hebrew speakers on two hands. Um, excuse me, two hands and two feet. Uh, but you didn't have anything like what you have today. The Zionist movement created this enormously successful, vibrant Hebrew-speaking culture in what was then Mandate Palestine and now um, morphed uh, after many wars and after much struggle and, and a great deal of building and building and building. Um, uh, the state of Israel and, and a Hebrew civil society. So can we return to that question about can uh, is anti-Zionism um, something apart from anti-Semitism? It depends what you mean by anti-Zionism. If, if what you mean by being anti-Zionist is... Um, distancing yourself from the activities of the state, uh, particularly since the 67 war, um, sure, you can be sort of anti-Zionist in that way and not be anti-Semitic. Can you be anti-Zionist in the traditional historical way? Of course, you can be anti-Zionist the way the rabbis were anti-Zionist at the turn of the 20th century. The rabbis used to kick Zionists out of their yeshivot, of their schools of learning, because they didn't want these secularists running around. Um, so in that sense, you can be anti-Zionist and you can be uh, uh, anti not anti-Semitic. Today, it's a, it's a little bit different because... Um, I think if you're working at the level of the simplifications that people import into some of their political decisions, um, you know, too often you're defining Zionism as being pro-Israel and being skeptical of the Jews around you who are rallying to Israel. And so, you know, what's traditional feelings of anxiety or suspicion do you have about Jews who seem to be always more concerned about their own solidarity than about the general good or something like that? You know, there you have anti-Semitic tropes already. You know, if, if being anti-Zionist means being against the very idea of Israel's existence, um, I'm not sure you're being anti-Semitic exactly, but you are being um, pretty dense and you are um, defaulting to uh, a kind of uh, willingness to, even in imagination, uh, rid the world of the Jewish state in a way that you'd never consider ridding the world of, I don't know, Sweden or some other state whose policies you may disagree with. Um, that, well, me, that, that to me is the problem. This comes up um, 
you know, right now there is this unprecedented movement of American Jews led by groups such as Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now that are protesting Israel's assault on Gaza, mm-hmm. thousands of Jewish protesters marching on Washington a few weeks ago and more recently taking over Grand Central Station in New York, hundreds arrested. Mm-hmm. They're calling for a ceasefire. Um, how significant is that in terms of Israeli politics for American Jews to now be breaking with Israel? It's significant for Israelis how Americans in general are responding, and certainly American, you know, some significant portion of American Jews as a subset of Americans. Uh, Israel is extremely reliant at the moment on the goodwill of the American government. Um, And, uh, you know, it is hurtful, I'm sure, for Israelis to see anyone, and most of all American Jews of any kind, somehow uh, justifying this massacre on October 7th as as no more than Israel deserves somehow. I mean, if you know anything like that would be uh, a horrible blow to the um, self-respect of Israelis and the sense of um, reliance of dependency that they have on America right now. I, I I don't see that. I don't see there being any apologies for the Hamas attacks, but I do see the calls for a ceasefire that are being led by American Jews, among others. Well, the call for you know calls for a ceasefire are arguable. You can be very sympathetic to Israel. That is to say, to the Israeli prosecution of the war in Gaza, or at least the justification for Israel to attack the people who attacked them. You can you can be you you can be sympathetic to that, and yet believe that the price in civilian lives may be too high to act to secure your own civilian lives. That's a very difficult case to make, um, but I can see people making it and holding Israel to that standard. You can also be very sympathetic to Israel and, and say, look, you don't know what this war is going to unleash. It may be con- create a contagion that that will envelop the West Bank and bring in Hezbollah and lead to the toppling of the Kingdom of Jordan and and you know you may be feeling justified in what you're doing but because of what you're of the way you must do it because of the way Hamas is using civilians as human shields because of what Hamas has done. It's like a big sucker punch, and you are getting into this thing and creating a world of pain for yourself way beyond what you had on October 7th, simply by following through on what may, what may be a morally defensible effort to root out Hamas. So calling for a ceasefire is not in and of itself um, an inarguable, uh, uh, an inarguable claim to make. I, 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 f- I feel like um, I want to believe that at least some of the people who are making that call for a ceasefire are doing it with a certain amount of compassion for the moral conundrum Israel is, is, is in and what it's been trying to do. I mean, just imagine if this were, you know, America, uh, having you know, having lost, God knows, uh, fifty thousand people on a single day, um, and then being asked, you know, if it was from Quebec, you know, and then being asked to, you know, live with these people continuing from Quebec to threaten you, where you yourself have had to withdraw all of your communities from the border of Quebec, which is what Israel has had to do. Israel has 200,000 people displaced right now. What is your 
biggest concern now as at the begin here we are the beginning of november um what concerns you most about what you see and what you see ahead well i think i've uh tipped my hand i mean i'm i'm deeply concerned um that israel's actions may create a larger conflagration that gets us closer to Bosnia than anything we've seen so far. Um, you know, we've had this case where um, the radical zealot uh, minorities in each people are like tails wagging the dog for a long time. Um, and, you know, we weren't prepared to go to war against our settlers for the sake of the Palestinians, and the Palestinians were not prepared to go to war against Hamas for the sake of Israelis. And so, you, you know, we've had this situation where, where people committing atrocities in the margins and increasingly, in, you know, and the margins are getting bigger and bigger of the people, people, people committing atrocities have kept the moderate center of each people away from each other because they've created these polarizing atrocities. And my fear is, as in Bosnia, that could become the way in which we all fall into a kind of terrible tribalism. Um, and if that happens, I mean, I live in Jerusalem, 300,000 Arabs live a mile from, a mile from me. Um, some of them are my dearest friends. <laughs> you know, do do I? You know, you probably could have said the same thing about Sarajevo in 1984 when it hosted the International Olympic Games, the Winter Games. You know, Jerusalem is the eye of a hurricane. You could have, you could have uh, ethnic cleansing and wars of. Um, a civil war on the streets, um, you know, in a week, if if these tails wag the dog. And, and I must say, since the audience here is um, American, of course, as I am half my year and half my brain, um, there's no substitute right now for the Biden administration playing an extremely active role in trying to create space for these moderates to get together. I mean, he's been signaling Biden, he's been signaling that he understands this responsibility, but I don't know if his administration fully understands how important it is for Biden now to give not just military backing, but political leadership to Israel and to its allies in the Middle East and give them a sense of the future and a sense of what he and his administration are going to work for over the next year, including something like a two-state confederation and, and regional integration. We, we need to have a positive vision so these moderates can get together and not be so susceptible to the, to the claims and the atrocities of their um, of their uh, zealot extremes. Okay, well, Bernard Abishai, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Thank you. Bernard Abishai is a visiting professor of government at Dartmouth and a regular contributor on Israeli affairs to The New Yorker. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.